The Cinema Limbo podcast is part of Podnose, the UK's leading independent entertainment podcasting network. For episode archives of Cinema Limbo and all of the shows on the network, visit us at www.podnose.com. You can also follow us on Twitter via at Podnose or send us an email via admin at podnose.com. human experience is a vast, uncalculably complex phenomenon, such that one would struggle to communicate it to a visitor from another world. But what if there was a piece of art you could point towards and say, this is all that we are? Could it live up to that challenge? My name is Jeremy Phillips, writer, critic, and eternal champion, and you are entering Cinema Limbo, the way station for underappreciated films. Tonight's seminar covers Cloud Atlas, the 2012 multi-genre ensemble film based on the novel by David Mitchell, adapted and directed by Tom Tickfer, Lana and Lily Wachowski, and starring Tom Hanks, Halle Berry, Jim Broadbent, Susan Sarandon, Ben Wishaw, Duna Bay, Hugh Grant and many others. My guest is Chris Arnsby, and you join us in an observation dome outside history's span. Hello, Chris. Hello. What can you tell me about the Wachowskis? Uh, they're now siblings. Um, I think they've always been siblings. Well, yes, yeah, sorry. That's a, that was a very poor way of phrasing it, but they used to be referred to as the uh, Wachowski brothers. Now they're the siblings, aren't they? Yes, I think they're still generally just called the Wachowskis, well, to yeah, be honest. Be, yes, yeah, that would make more sense. They did The Matrix. They did Speed Racer. And they did Cloud Atlas. And that's about it. Yeah, it touches the uh, the ceiling of your knowledge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't take long. <laughs> well, um, The Matrix was not their first film as directors. Their first uh, film was Bound several years earlier. Oh, yeah. A lowish budget uh, contemporary noir, um, which touched on some of the elements that would come up later in their work. But it was, it was more of kind of a proof of concept film. They'd already pitched The Matrix to Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers were interested, but they mm. weren't willing to gamble on filmmakers with no track record on a project like this. So they finagled some money and went off and made Bannon and said, look, we know how to make a movie. Mm. Here here we go. And the result was The Matrix, and that did pretty well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, reshaping the whole of blockbuster cinema for the next 20 years or so. Yeah. Um. And then we have the Matrix sequels, hmm. and yeah, people are people do make that noise, don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I rewatched the original trilogy, the original trilogy, um, hmm. <laughs> uh, prior to the Matrix Resurrections coming out last year, and the sequels aren't great. No, but I had a better appreciation of what they're trying to do. Um philosophically they're probably the most ambitious blockbusters ever made because they are really about difficult complicated concepts about the nature of existence the nature of reality and they're not particularly well communicated within the confines of a traditional narrative structure and the wachowskis come back 
after this, trying to do something a bit lighter, a bit different, was, as you say, Speed Racer, mm. which was a bomb. Yes. And I remember watching it in the cinema, and it felt like I was having a seizure. Yes. I mean, it was based on a 60s cartoon, wasn't it? But I don't know if that cartoon ever made it across the Atlantic to the UK. I think it did. Okay. Um, but the idea was that it was going to be something light and fun, suitable for a family audience, hmm. not complex. But it wound up being really quite complex yeah. and visually very, very stylized and very layered. Um, uh, scenes composited together to look like levels of cell animation. Oh. Um, and visual transitions and all these and all, and the, and the races as well yeah. are it's insanely over the top because it's based on a manga isn't it i think don't know i know it's based on the on an animated on tv a cartoon. series yeah i think so i think which was japanese yeah i don't know if that in turn was based on um a manga yeah. but um so I'm str- trying to remember now which other films the Wachowskis have done. <laughs> <laughs> they also did V for Vendetta. Oh, um, gosh. They did, um, didn't they? They, they adapted um, Alan Moore and David Lloyd's graphic novel, or stories rather than graphic novel, and uh, handed over directing to their previous second unit director, James McTeague. Okay. And it was on V for Vendetta where Natalie Portman introduced them to the book Cloud Atlas. Right. Which she was reading between setups. And they were intrigued by this. Hmm. And this got the ball rolling. Um, I think there was one other project they were doing in, in the meantime after Speed Racer, because that would be a six or seven year break before their next film. Hmm. Uh, oh, no, the Speed Racer came out in 2008. Okay. And they also worked on uh, 2007's The Invasion. Um, which you've now yeah exactly was that a tv series no oh it was the 2007 remake of invasion of the body snatchers oh starring daniel craig and nicole kidman oh that one and originally to have been directed by oliver hirschbeagle the director of downfall and he presented his original cut to the studio (laughs) they hated it it was far too weird and cerebral Mm. the wachowskis were hired to rewrite large chunks of it and mcteague came in to reshoot it I remember that um, Daniel Craig was introduced to the press as the new James Bond Mm. uh, during a break in shooting. I think it was after the original principal photography on The Invasion had wrapped. And so we had the pre-production of Casino Royale. Casino Royale was filmed, edited, shot, released in cinemas, released on DVD. There was then another six or seven month gap and then the invasion came out. Ouch. Because it took that long to get everyone together yeah. to do the reshoots. And the result is not a very good film. Mm. It's the only version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers where the humans win at the end. Right. Okay. That that sounds baffling. Yeah, it's really not very good. Yeah. I would have been interested to see what Hirschbeagel Mm. had intended because that sounds and he's not worked in Hollywood since then Kel Surprise but the Wachowskis uh, continued their interest in Cloud Atlas David Mitchell's novel not that one Mm. and got together with the German filmmaker Tom Tikva what can you tell me about Tom Tikva he's German good (laughs) Um, and moving on Uh, well he came to international prominence as the director of Run Lola Run 
Oh, okay. Right, yes. Uh, which is a very weird, ambitious film about a woman trying to get together 100,000 marks or euros or whatever it was mm. in 20 minutes. But we see it replayed three or four different times with different choices made each way. And it does point towards Cloud Atlas says the consequences of the choices you make small mm. things rippling out and having massive consequences yeah and he'd also proven himself as the director of germany's biggest budget ever production perfume the story of a murderer okay can't say I've... uh based on the novel by patrick suskind okay yeah starred ben wishaw oh okay um about a set in i think 18th century france about a man born with a fantastically acute refined sense of smell mm and perceives the world around him in terms of scents and the story of his quest to produce the perfect perfume which requires him to murder people by distilling the essence of beautiful women okay the book had been regarded as unfilmable <laughs> which also yeah ties into cloud but the but, and the film is actually pretty good mm. uh tickville figured out how you can depict smell on camera Okay. In a way that is cr- tremendously evocative and works. Is it something that can be described, or is it something you really need to see the film to see how it how it works? It uses all the other. It uses sound and vision to sort of trigger sense memories in the audience. Okay. And like close ups of um, fish being chopped up, and the and like you hear the sound of the knife going through the fish much mm. more acutely, and so it's, the sound is more acute. The 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 image is much sharper and more uh, detailed, so it's triggering off other sense memories. Oh yeah, what I know what that smells okay. like. Okay. So he had that he's had already had a reputation for cracking unfilmable mm. things. David Mitchell, the author, uh, had entertained the idea of there being a film of Cloud Atlas, but thought it probably wouldn't work because mm. of the way the book is structured. The book is structured quite differently from the film. Okay. The book consists of six stories unfolding over the course of 500 years from the 19th century through to the 23rd. But you get to the first half of the first story and then it stops. And then we start the second story. Okay. And it gets the first half of that and that starts, and so on. The sixth story is told in its entirety. And then... And then we have the last half of the fifth story, the last half of the fourth, and so on. So it ends... With oh, the, with the, yeah. the ending of the first story Good. back in the 19th century again. Um, Mitchell thought no one is going to want to see a film which keeps restarting every half hour. Yeah. Uh, it won't work. The Wachowskis and Tikva agree because the film is a mosaic mm. that jumps between each of the six stories in a stream of consciousness fashion yeah. where it usually connects together images tone um a line of dialogue a line of yeah. a line of dialogue um there's like fades between two trains one in the 30s one in the present day move mm. going through glencoe it all sort of winds itself together yeah the hero of the film's production was tom hanks <laughs> okay because he signed on at a quite an early stage before they had the money oh, right. and said, whenever you're ready, whenever the film is, you know, whenever you've got the money, 
let me know and I'll be there. And they always had, whenever they were talking to finances in their back pocket, Tom Hanks has signed on to be in the movie. Yeah. They eventually got the money together. Cloud Atlas was the most expensive German film ever made. And it was a box office disaster. Mm. Got a 10-minute standing ovation at the Toronto Film Festival. So these t- they keep talking about these standing ovations. Yeah. They really do mean nothing. <laughs> I don't think I realized it was a German film. I think because it's obviously... I think I just assumed it was a standard Hollywood film, to be honest. No, it was picked up by Warner Brothers for distribution. But think, it was it yeah. was financed... And all the studio shooting was done in Germany. Okay, yeah, didn't know that. Um, but yeah, released in the autumn of 2012. Mm. Flops. Gets a delayed release in the UK in, I think, February 2013. And I was intrigued by this. Mm. You know, the Matrix was fantastic, of course. The Wachowskis films since then, not so great. Yeah. But I thought, well, this is a change of direction. Literary background, big cast something unusual i went to see it and i was absolutely staggered by it Mm. i thought it was extraordinary and i still do yeah spoilers for the end of this podcast i think this film's a masterpiece (laughs) (laughs) fair enough no pressure then yeah so uh hope you liked it Yeah. What, what were your immediate responses? When did you when did you watch it? Yesterday? I watched it, yeah. I, it, as is my usual habit with these things. Yes, I watched it at the last minute so that it sits in my memory as well as possible. My immediate reaction was, of course, I started it up and it's like, it's three hours long. Yeah, but it also enc- encompasses the entirety of the human experience in that time. So, Yeah. yeah. Um, I've got to say I'm surprised, actually. We're, we're sitting here and you've got the book sitting next to you. I assumed the book was going to be a proper Stephen King-style doorstopper. Um, but this is not even half the width of it, I don't think. It's longish. Yeah. Uh, about 530 pages. I remember re- borrowing a copy of... But, but in terms of size, it's nothing. I borrowed a copy of it from the library in hardback once and you used to have to stop reading it every 10 minutes because your legs went dead (laughs) well Stephen King long ago was Mm. uh, insulated from editors yes everyone knows Stephen King is a nice man Mm. Um, but um, I I think that a lot of his work would benefit from from an editor from an editor yeah from a from a red pen yeah and it being as long as it is and pretty actually the second of the two films based mm-hmm. on it, of the two-part film, yeah. is, I think, seven minutes shorter than the film of Cloud Atlas. It is, isn't it, actually? I remember, yes, I remember being surprised at how... It Part 2 is over two and a half hours. But, of course, <sighs> Cloud Atlas in 2012 would have been an exception at clocking in at nearly three hours, wouldn't it? We've subsequently, we've had that weird kind of film inflation. Yeah. I think... It justifies its length yeah, because oh, yeah. there is so much in this. As I say, it's, it is mm. the entirety of the human experience. I think now that there are so many films that are not justifying that length. Yeah, Avengers Endgame was the climax of 22 movies. Yes. Three hours, that's fair enough. Um, uh, we, didn't need, we don't need a three-hour cut of uh, Midsommar. I think I, I recently was toying with the idea of watching, is it the new Doctor Strange film? Oh, in the multiverse of madness, stupidly long. Is uh, it? I I remember. I think it's 
slightly under two hours. Oh, okay. It? Maybe I've missed, or maybe I, maybe I've lost the ability to do basic maths when looking <laughs> at film notes. I remember looking at it thinking I don't have time to watch a film that, but yeah, maybe I'm just showing my ignorance I, again. I, th- I think yeah, I think there was some. It was noteworthy mentioned at the time. Maybe it's actually not that long. I think it's I think it's two hours without the credits. Okay, maybe I'm thinking of something else then. Perhaps, um, hmm. but yeah, films are getting weirdly long. Yeah. Um, oh, of no time to die. Yeah, that's the one I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah. Which is again less than ten minutes shorter than Cloud Atlas. Yeah, and yeah. is not worth your time. No. Um, and as I say, the film has a a huge cast. The the gimmick, or it's, yeah, it's a bit unfair to call it a gimmick, but the idea being the same actors are in each of the six stories playing different characters. But the notion the film suggests is that they are the same souls yeah. reincarnated over and over again through the ages. That is an invention of the film that does okay. not come up in the book. And also, worth mentioning, David Mitchell loved the film. Yeah. He has a cameo in it, uh, apparently, in in the future career section. Okay. I can't recognize him because I can't remember what he looks like. Mm. He just looks like a guy. Yeah. Um, but he was absolutely thrilled with the finished production. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Because uh, it takes a, a lot of the stuff that's in it, the idea of the characters recurring across different times. I think I just assumed that that was in the book. And I think I assumed that that was all part of what made the book be considered as unfilmable. Um I think it's the structure that yeah. makes it challenging and the fact that it's set over such a colossal span of time yeah. with five stories that don't immediately intersect. Well, some of them do. There's a couple of characters, I think, who appear in more than one story. Yeah. But um, they generally are completely discreet. Um, so we have you know, Jim Sturgis, Ben Wishaw, Halle Berry, Jim Broadbent, Duna Bay, Tom Hanks, Hugh Grant, Hugo Weaving... Susan Sarandon, Keith David, James Darcy, Zhu Chin, sorry, Zhu Shun, David Gyasi, and Robert Fife, as well as several other actors in mm. minor roles. And they're all in at least two of the six. Um, the real revelation, I think, is Hugh Grant. Yeah. This, this was at the beginning of his sort of career turnaround. I was going to say, that, yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Um and he, both he and Tom Hanks, have said that this is these are one of this is one of the very few films they've made that they would watch again. Hmm. And Grant sees it, I think, as the the best work he's ever done as an actor. Okay, he plays six different characters. Hmm. I certainly didn't. I think I got two of them. Some of, I mean, a couple of them are clearly him. Yeah, I think Lloyd Hooks his. Uh, Yes, nuclear yeah, power plant. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just him. But the, one thing that the film had was criticised for, because the film has this global span, you have actors playing not just different races, yeah, uh, but different uh, genders. Several actors playing women, or women playing men, which I think then feeds back into the Wachowskis. Yes, because the Wachowskis are both trans women, and the idea of a a perpetual soul that continues to exist regardless of gender mm. or that can or that can switch between in some way i find that recalling of 
their other work. The Matrix yeah, yeah. is about escaping from this this imprisoned environment, which is dictating your own identity to you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's about making the it's about making the choices to to, to express yourself as you want to. Yeah. 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 To the extent that in the original script, one of the characters was going to be, um, I think it was male in the real world, but female when they're within the Matrix. Well, that would have been interesting. But aside from making, you know, the studio was a bit shaky about that, they couldn't figure out how to make that clear that yeah. it was the same character. Um, mm. Yes, tricky. Um, but yes, we start with elderly Tom Hanks uh, sitting at a fireside under the night sky about to tell a story. And just using a slightly... It's a bit like listening to uh, some, you know, uh, the, 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 the Canterbury Tales or something where the English is just not quite right. Yeah. So there's obviously something strange going on. But yeah, is it past? Is it future? It's kind of no way of telling at this point, is mm. there, I don't think. Yeah. The use of language all the way through, I think, is is clever. Mm. As in the book, each each story is told or written in the idiom of the time in which it's set. So you can see the way people communicate evolve. And each story is told in a different way. It's all about the nature and evolving storytelling style. Um, the first story is told in the form of letters. The second... Um, no, the second isn't that. The first is a diary. The second is letters. The third, a mystery novel. The fourth is a memoir. The fifth is a police interrogation. And the sixth is a campfire story. Okay. Yeah, I hadn't picked up on that. There's a lot in this film. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you yeah, only I saw it yesterday. You haven't had time to process it completely. No, exactly. Yes, yeah. I saw it 12 years ago. <laughs> I saw it 10 years ago, and I'm still digging stuff yeah. out. Um. And we are very briefly introduced to some of the main characters. We have um, uh, reporter Louisa Ray in San Francisco in the 70s. We have Adam Ewing in the Pacific Islands in the 18th, in the 19th century. Um, Robert Frobisher, a composer in the 30s, writes of his decision to kill himself hmm. and that suicide is not an act of cowardice but requires courage and resolution. Uh, in the future, we have a Korean woman named Sonmi stating that truth is singular. Um, and in the present day, a elderly publisher called Timothy Cavendish, who is talking about the uh, the actions of one of his clients. Yes, that was it. Yeah, I think the the Ben Whishaw one is odd because that obviously it's plainly start. Well, it's obviously starting at the end of his story because it ends with him killing himself. Yeah. But all the others are definitely much more sort of at the beginning so we have then each of the six stories are introduced we have a chunk from each of them and we start the chatham islands south pacific 1849 Mm. Uh, adam ewing's father-in-law has sent him to uh, cut a deal uh, for local trade Um, and on the islands there is slavery yes Um, one group of islanders working as overseers over another and Ewing is at dinner with one of the uh, the white overlords on the island who refers to the ladder of civilization. Mm, that was well, it's the usual kind of whinging justification that was used for why it's right for us to do this to that group of people over there. Yeah, yeah, it's played by Hugo Weaving. 
Yes, he's the he's the father, isn't he? Yes. Sorry, I'm just trying to get trying to get it straight in my head. Yes. Um, Hugo Weaving will play villains in each of the six stories. Yes, he does, doesn't he? Yeah, in fact, that makes sense of something which I'm sure we'll come on to later. It's about the progress of each of these yeah. souls. Over the, the, the Tom Hanks one is the central one mm. because his story, as his soul progresses through the stories, is the most sort of clear cut as he evolves from villain to yeah. bystander to hero. Yes. But with others, it's much less clear cut. Yeah, some people carry on. I think some people repeat the same actions some people don't progress yeah yeah so there is a sense of i'd certainly picked up on a little bit of that with different people um ewing is starting to feel quite unwell Mm. Uh, walking through a um a a local encampment he catches the eye of a a young boy played by halle berry okay do you see i didn't and that's if i have a complaint about this film a little bit it's that the putting the same actors in different sections occasionally turns the film into a bit of a contest just oh did you see so and so did you and I, I did there were points when it jerked me out of the story a little bit because i'm going is that you know is that um whoever and trying to and trying to work and, and suddenly i was concentrating more on who the actor was rather than on what was supposed to be going on but i suppose that's always slightly inevitable when you've got a film that's structured like this and there are so many actors playing under makeup yeah i don't think does tom hanks at any point play a character without makeup i don't think he does i don't think the closest he gets is in the 73 segment yeah but he's got a very funny wig on i suppose that's true yes this very unconvincing blonde wig all the rest of them the makeup is generally really good but the wig looks weird um but Ewing starts to feel ill, as I say. And in the village, he, there's also a slave who's been who was being tied tortured, to a pillory yeah. and is being whipped. And he catches Ewing's eye as well. And he finds it somewhat disconcerting. Mm. And he actually collapses and is being tended to by a physician called Henry Goose, mm. who he's previously met um, panning for teeth on the oh, beach. Yeah, yeah. Um, who has sort of ideas about cannibalism and things like that and he repeats a phrase that i think crops up through a couple of the different segments the weak are meat the strong do eat that was the one yeah sip of coffee there Mm. very nice um he starts treating uh ewing for a polynesian worm yes he passes out in the sun doesn't he yeah yes and he's he's not well uh, which he says, you know, can turn a man's brain into like a maggoty cauliflower. Mm. Oh, but don't worry, I'm sure we'll all be fine. Yes. yes. Uh, our next stop is Cambridge, 1936. Uh, Robert Frobisher, um, who has the Comet Burkmouth, I think, on his on his back. Uh, yeah, lower back, I think, because obviously you get he's in he's in bed, he's in with, bed with Sixsmith with Robert Sixsmith yeah. well, who I is keep it... wanting to call Martin Sixsmith but he was a BBC reporter so he I was won't. yeah I try not to make that mistake again Rufus Sixsmith Rufus I will not get any of the names of these characters remotely I, correct I do have them all written down yeah that's lucky um, and there's someone banging on the door they're in a hotel mm. Frobisher throws his clothes on jumps out of the window makes a run for it and gets on a train to Edinburgh yep his plan, 
is to become the amanuensis to the great composer Vivian Ayres, who has long since retired. And uh, Frobisher also sees this as a way of getting back at his father and his family yeah. who've disinherited him, largely because, I think, because he's gay. Yeah. In the book, um, Ayres actually lives in Belgium. Okay. And the story of Frobisher's travels to get there are considerably longer of his oh, okay. uh, taking what little money he has buying a bag of cro- croissant um, <laughs> basically living rough in Bruges for a couple of days until yeah. he, until he meets a policeman who shares his love of classical music and the policeman lends him his bike and this is this like very minor character who we almost like to have seen in the film yeah. this this nice policeman it's fun. It, it's fascinating that the screenwriting process is so odd because that, I'm sure it, it, it doesn't feel redundant in the book, but in the film it would have been, he's on a train, he just needs to get to where he's going. And it's just fascinating the way you can take various loops of stories and just excise them and, you know, and it doesn't change the overall structure or the overall tone. But yeah. For, and all of this is being communicated through voiceover. Hmm. Um Firstly, Ewing is writing in his diary, and Frobisher is writing letters to Sixsmith. Yeah. Um, they get to the estate, and Ayres, played by um, Jim Broadbent, in make uh, again an amusing wig. Yes. That makes him look like an elderly Krusty the Clown. Um, says, "Oh, all right. Well, let's let's see what you can do then." And he starts to dictate a tune to him. Uh, Frobish is not getting it quite right. He's adding a counterpoint and as loses his temper and is about to throw him out. And then Frobisher perfectly plays the piece of music and as says, that's it. That's exactly what I was, what I was hearing in Mm. my head. So he decides to keep him on. San Francisco, 1973. Yes. We have Halle Berry. Halle Berry as reporter, journalist, Louisa Ray for Spy Magazine um, is in the middle of trying to interview a rock star who is just being horrible and sleazy. Oh, that's it, yes. And again, that's another character, that actor. I can't remember which actor he is, but he recurs all the way through and keeps playing sleazy, Mm. unpleasant people. And she storms out and gets into a lift. Yep. Just as the doors close, someone shoves an umbrella in and gets in. And it might take a moment to realise, but it's Rufus Sixsmith, yeah. 40 years older. And this was one particular bit where I was suddenly, and I don't like to jump backwards and forwards in films if I can avoid it, but I did just... Oh, well, you're in trouble here. Well, yeah, exactly. So, no, I re it quickly. It's like, okay, fine. Yeah, got those two characters. So, Frobisher Sixsmith, now Sixsmith. And it's that point when you go, okay, maybe I'm beginning to understand how the structure of this film is going to work. Because in theory, as well, the characters in the eighteen is the eighteen seventies for the for the Ewing story. Yeah, yeah. You think conceivably one of those could then intrude into the thirties story? There's not that much of a gap. Possibly yeah. that never actually happens. No, it doesn't. But, but that was kind of where I was sort of sitting there, just trying to think. Well, okay, how do I understand how this film could work? Mm. Um, anyway, the power goes out and they're trapped in a lift. The power they're trapped in the lift, and they they bond these two sort of unlikely friends. Um, Louisa explains how her father was a mm. uh, a, a great 
Oh, he recognises her. He recognises her father's name, doesn't he? Yes, yeah. he was a great journalist and sort of crusading photojournalist. And Sixsmith is now a nuclear physicist, very highly respected, and has been compiling a report on a new, um, uh, a new plant being built offshore on Swanaki Island. I checked, and all the locations given in the Louisa Ray story are fake. Ah, okay. It's not set in San Francisco in the book. Right. It's set in a fake, made-up, um, fictitious California city. Okay. The reason being, the Louisa Ray section is written in the form of a pulp thriller. Oh, right. Okay. Um, but as they talk, I mean, also, uh, Sixsmith pulls out a um, some pictures of his family, uh, his brother and his sister-in-law, played by Jim Sturgis and Duna Bay. Jim Sturgis, who played uh, Ewing. Right. Duna Bay, who hasn't come up yet as a major character, but will. And Louisa has the book, the birthmark on her shoulder. Yes, and that's how, because it gets, it, it gets, hot, in the li- uh, it gets hot in the lift and Louisa takes the uh, jacket, jacket off, which is how he sees the birthmark. Yeah. And it triggers something in Sixsmith that he remembers... Frobisher having a mm. similar birthmark and it makes him trust her because he asks her if she protects her sources just as her father had done mm. because he has something that he thinks people need to know is sorry I'm maybe going wildly off pace at this point is there an implication that because no other characters have that birthmark do they I don't think yes they do oh do they okay <laughs> that's <laughs> It, I, it does come up again. Yeah, I was trying to work out whether there was an... In, going back to what we were talking about with the Matrix and the, the character potentially changing sex inside and outside, I did wonder whether there was an implication there that Halle Berry's character is... Um, I want to call him Frobisher, which I know isn't right. Oh, is it right? Ben Whishaw's character ben Whishaw's in the 30s. Character. Yeah, it is Frobisher. It is Frobisher. <laughs> don't know. Um, yeah, um... I don't know if there's supposed to be an implication that they're the same person because Ben Whishaw, because Frobisher does specifically say towards the end of his story that they'll meet again. Yes. That's not how I read it. No. I don't think, I think I'm reaching for things that aren't there, but... Uh, I read that the, the continuing souls are the ones always played by the same actor. Yeah, that would make more sense, I guess. Um, but, and they, they do meet again, though, I think. Um they don't in that story because Wishaw plays a store clerk. Oh yes, of course he does. I was about to say he doesn't turn up in the. Um, I was about to say he doesn't turn up in the seventh. But yes, of course he does. He, he has does. one yeah. scene. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, I, I checked the character. The, uh, the James Darcy and Ben Wishaw characters do not meet again. Okay. Huh. Bit not in this life. Anyway. Yeah. So we jump again to London, twenty twelve, present day. Yes. And it's the Lemon Prizes for for Publishing, which I thought was an obvious dig at the Orange Prize. Mm. Um, Timothy Cavendish, uh, an older one-man operation publisher, has published a book by Dermot Higgs, an Irish gangster, played by Tom Hanks, yeah. with a fun accent. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> it's, better, he's, it's better than Tom Cruise's. He's playing a kind of a caricature. Yeah. Um, and he locks again. He locks eyes with a an Asian woman at a party at the party, and that's Halle Berry again. But Higgs is very angry at the book's 
failure mm. and particularly the attitudes of some critics even though cavendish is actually being quite supportive and mollifying him and they get on weirdly quite well which mm. i quite like yeah um cavendish says a critic reads quickly arrogantly but never wisely but um higgs decides to do something he picks up a couple of trays bashes them together to get attention and says that he's going to give out a special award to the most eminent critic hmm which is to one in particular whom he disliked, who in turn makes a, a an unpleasant, sardonic remark. Higgs shrugs, picks him up, and throws him off the balcony where he falls five stories to his death. And it's safe to say I didn't see that coming. I did just assume there was going to be an awkward scene or... And this would be a hell of a lot, a lot more effective anecdote if I could remember. It's Gore Vidal and a famously violent american writer can't remember her it's not hemingway but it's hemingway and it's the once again words fail story if you've heard that one norman mailer norman mailer that's it yes yeah norman mailer takes a swing at gore vidal and gore vidal comes back with the epithets of yes once again words fail norman mailer <laughs> <laughs> didn't they have a fist fight on a film didn't they make a film where they actually wound up having a real fight and it wound up incorporated into the film I don't know, but if they did, I'm definitely going to go and see if that's on YouTube later. I can't imagine Gore Vidal having a fist fight with someone. No, it's nothing too refined. Nothing that vulgar. Yes, um, I did like that. Um, the critic's body lands on a car. The car alarm goes off, and then it just beeps off after a couple of seconds, mm. which I thought was a, a, a lift of the same joke from the South Park movie. Yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. oh, why not? Yeah. Um, the party guests are stunned. Higgs just goes to the bar and mm. politely orders a tequila slammer. Cavendish, meanwhile, is appalled and then realises money, money, sales money. are going to yeah. go through the roof. It's talked about on TV. Jeremy Paxman is talking about this whole affair. Cavendish is rich. He's doing it with lots of lovely shopping. And then the door to his office gets kicked in because Higgs's brothers have arrived and they yeah. want their cut. And they want £50,000 by the following day. And they have the great image of them pushing a sink plunger into his yes, face. Yes, yeah, yeah, which is a very nice, uh, nice image. I think I hadn't expected this film to be quite so funny. I think that's the thing that actually wrong-footed me. It's got a re- I mean, some of the the, the, the humour can be a bit all over the place. But yeah, I, 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 I think somewhat where in my head I just assumed this was going to be a very sort of dour, serious heavy film i hadn't expected it to be quite so light-hearted the cavendish story is a comedy mm. basically it's a bit darker in the book okay but i think they realized the potential of having a variation of tones particularly something like the the two future stories yeah. are really dark yes uh but having this one as being just a bit of a breather yeah and it being this sort of bittersweet comedy drama and i think if you've got jim broadbent then yeah give the guy some decent jokes um so our fifth story, we jump forward to Neo Soul mm. in the year 2144. And Sonmi is telling us about her life. She is in some way under interrogation for what we don't yet know. Mm. But she is a fabricant, an artificial person who works in Papa Song's, a fast food restaurant. And she talks about uh, her regular day, which is waking up, eating soap, which is the Mm. special food they have, working for 20 hours, and then going back into her little cell and going back to sleep again. And it's like that every day 
all year yeah. for 12 years. Yes. And at the end of 12 years, uh, they go through exaltation. Yes, that's it. And that's a great honor. And if you've seen Logan's run, mm. then you know what that is. Yes. There's a, there's a lot of nods, I feel, to 70s sci-fi. There's a line later where Cavendish explicitly refers to Soylent Green. Yeah, yeah. And I actually assumed, again, that that, that might well be a deliberate seeding of the resolution of the Neo, Neo Soul storyline. The idea of cannibalism, yes, both, it both physical, the physical and metaphorical, yeah. is a major thing. Yeah. Um, but the fabricants all have their their catechisms that neo soul and the the world in which it operates is an end stage consumer society. Yeah. The first catechi- the first catechism is honor thy consumer, um, and the the soul of the the critic from the previous story, Felix Finch, his name was, uh, appears here and just gropes one of the waitresses, one of the fabricant waitresses. Okay, right. And they do nothing about it because, of course, they can't. Yeah. Um, Sonmi mentions that when one of her colleagues left through exaltation, she was very happy for her, Hmm. but nevertheless very envious, but is woken one night by one of her colleagues, Yuna, Yuna 939, who is... Actually, no, she, she just wakes up on her own, doesn't she? It's not really clear. There's a throwaway line a little bit later about that they have a... The, the interrogator has a brief conversation about who woke her up, and I never really quite got to the bottom of what they meant. But no, it's, it's, it's presented as if she just wakes up. And she finds that um, the manager of the, uh, the, the restaurant, yeah, played by Hugh Grant, Okay, yeah, again, didn't didn't pick up on that one. Uh, is is raping her. Mm. And he then drinks a portion of soap, which is an intoxicant to non-fabricants, and blacks out. Um, the catechisms are used as a means of control, and yeah. another theme of the film is organised religion as a prison. Yeah, I can see that, yeah. Um, the way the church acts as an imperial colonizing force in Ewing's story, um, particularly with um, Hugh Grant again as the Reverend Horrocks, mm. who is this horrible white supremacist in a way that was widely tolerated at the time. Yeah. Um, faith in Sonmi later on. But even uh, just in the story of Frobisher and Sigsmith, that... Um you know, that sort of behaviour is not tolerated in the 30s. Yeah, yeah. No. Um, Yuna takes uh, Sonmi to a nearby cupboard and shows her a video clip on a future mobile phone mm. that someone's left. One of the um, narrative or sort of um, linguistic tricks of this story in the book is that all manufactured items are referred to by brand name. Okay. So a mobile phone is called a Sony. Right. A car is called a Ford. So yeah. it's the the idea that you know we call vacuum cleaners Hoovers. Yes, yeah, it's yeah. that extended to everything. Yes, makes sense. Um and on this little video clip is a very melodramatic and stylized vision. I think it almost looks a bit like Speed Racer. Yeah. Yeah. Of Tom Hanks saying that he will not be subjected to criminal abuse and then storming out of a room. Yeah. Um, 
sometime later, some during a working day, Sonmi sees Yuna being abused by staff. Mm. And Yuna's response is to spray one of the customers with ketchup and slap them to the floor and then say, I will not be subjected to criminal abuse. And she makes a run for it. But as soon as she steps outside the restaurant, the explosive collar around her neck explodes and kills her. She's got a thing. like She's grabbed something from a customer, hasn't she? And I assume she's running towards the elevator and she's trying to get this thing to work. I, uh, the, the way I read it's it... It's to call the lift, I think. Yeah, yeah. And, of course, and she keeps looking back at um, Hugh Grant's character. The manager. Yeah, who has got, yes. Uh, they're described later as... Carotid artery explosives or something, aren't yeah, they? yeah, which just sounds lovely. And police in riot uniforms turn up and they start to clear everything away. Sorry, and as everyone goes back to their meal, it reminded me very briefly the idea of I just literally just as we're just sitting here, it reminded me of a throwaway joke from an episode of a Judge Dredd story called The Cursed Earth. Oh, yeah, where they're in uh, the McDonald's and the Burger King. Uh, having a war in the cursed earth and i think at one point the guy that runs the mcdonald's tribe shoots somebody and shouts everything's disposable at mcdonald's even the staff <laughs> well exactly yeah i failed an interview for mcdonald's once really yeah wow. i mean i don't i in retrospect i don't know how that should even be humanly possible you obviously showed too much free will i th- i i'd answered the interview questions very badly i think right. they i i was presented with a series of scenarios of what to do <laughs> um, uh, you know, this this something that you know, someone is complaining about th- whatever this is. Mm. What do you do? I don't know. I mean, in theory, the idea is that they train you so mm. that you then know what to do. Yes, because yeah. I haven't worked there before. But um, apparently, this sort of lack of pre-existing McDonald's experience yeah. disqualified me from the job. Oh, I could have been running the place by now. Well, yeah, yeah. It's like Ben Elton's old joke, wasn't it? You you work there for a while, they give you a star. You stay there all day, they give you five stars, yeah. <laughs> Simon Day claims to have been the first person fired by McDonald's in the UK. Yeah, it's entirely possible. My friend, I used to, I did have a friend who after university briefly worked for McDonald's. And basically, as far as I could tell, it was. But when the when it was a when you're on a quiet shift, you just played the "What happens if we put this on the hot plate?" game. <laughs> so we jump forward again to our final story uh, on the Big Isle, mm. 106 winters after the fall. Yeah, the film is a bit vague on the matter. The book is more clear. The Big Isle is Hawaii. Oh, okay. And our main character here is Zachary played by Tom Hanks, who finds a piece of green glass on the beach, uh, but senses the presence of old Georgie. Hmm. Now, exactly who or what old Georgie is is never made clear. Yeah, He's played by Hugo Weaving. He looks like the Grim Reaper crossed with Baron Samady. Yeah. But the way the character is written, it suggests that he's more just the the devil on Zachary's shoulder. Yeah. Yeah, it's never really clear whether he's not. He's not. If, if, if yeah, he's obviously. Is he really real, or is he just in Tom Hanks's head? Yeah, it's not. Never, but it's shot, shot very, very nicely. Shot in that very nice way where you'll get a sort of forward shot of Tom Hanks and 
old Gregory is over his shoulder, and then they'll immediately cut to a reverse shot, and he's suddenly in front of it, which is it's very nicely done. That. Yeah. There's a scene later where they're um, climbing up the side of a mountain, where Georgie is standing on the mount, standing yes, on the mountainside is, as though it? it's yeah. flat ground. Yeah. Um, presumably done without the whole, you know, the, the traditional like Batman laying laying on the flat building trick. That would be brilliant if that's how they did that sequence. Um, the Kona tribe, Kona is another of the Hawaiian islands, mm. um, attack as Zachary hides. And we get the line again, the weak meet, the strong do eat. Yeah. Uh, Zachary's brother Jonas is shot and killed by the Kona. And Zachary is shamed for this. His family stand by him and support him, but the rest of the village yeah. are consider him a coward. The leader of the Kona is played by Hugh Grant. Okay. Didn't again didn't Again a, a non speaking post apocalyptic uh, cannibal warrior mm. played by Hugh Grant. And he's great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I genuinely and that's one of those occasions when I wouldn't have picked up on him at all. Um there's a couple of places where, like I say, I think the makeup is distractingly obvious that somebody's got lots of prosthetics on. But no, in the case of that guy, because everyone's kind of made up to look weird anyway. Yeah, they're all sort of scarified as well. Yeah, you just kind of go with it. Because in some ways, they're not trying to replicate how people look, you know. Um, They're not going for naturalistic features. It is is supposed to be right. That's very successful, that one. Mm. Um. Grant actually lobbied for that role. Really? He had been cast in five of the stories and lobbied to be in a sixth. Yeah, good for him. And at this point, the prescients arrive, mm. um, who appear to be a much more advanced civilization. They have some sort of large electric catamaran of some sort arrives. Yeah. And among them is Merinim, played by Halle Berry, who strikes... Zachary very suddenly and uh, he has very conflicted feelings mm. about her um, Georgie says that he shouldn't trust her but Zachary feels rather different uh, he sees Merinim using a tool on her injuries mm. um, and um, has a dream of past events and things which prompts him to go and see the, the village abbess played mm. by Susan Sarandon who goes into a trance and delivers a prophecy. Yes. Bridge a broken, hide below. Rope a slipping, can't let go. Enemies sleeping, don't slit a throat. Yes. And, and advises him to trust in Sonmi. Yeah, there's... um. Yes, of course, trust in Sonmi, yes. There's... Again, there, there's a little special effects sequence when she goes into the trance where her eyes all change colours. Um... I'm not sure that was necessary because it's one of those it's it's it sets the prophecy aside as being something it's not just something that somebody could be making up like a sort of fake spiritualist or something it's very obviously something weird that's going on I kind of didn't like it I kind of felt it put too much weight on the prophecy and made it significant whereas it would have been I just felt it might have been nicer to just leave Tom Hanks to sort of work the stuff out for himself later on um, but right. eh, it's just me this is why I'm such a successful screenwriter you see. <laughs> from this point on the film jumps around through each of the six mm. stories 
and that's what occupies the rest of my notes. Yeah, yeah. And I have marked them all, so I could, so I was able to follow it all. So, um, Sonmi wakes up and finds that the manager has taken a soap overdose and died, but uh, an investigator um, says that she should come with him. Hmm. Um, Ewing sets sail from the islands uh, and is already is very concerned about what's happening and wants to get rid of the contract if he possibly can. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose, yes, that's true. While this fades through to Frobisher reading a published edition of Ewing's Diaries. Mm. And in his letters to Sixsmith says he's found this book on the shelf, but there's only half of it. The The volume has been, been, been torn in half, and he describes a half-finished book as being like a half-finished love affair. Yeah. Uh, the work with Ayers is going very well, and that fades through to the 70s, where the head of the nuclear plant, played by Hugh Grant, is on TV, which is being watched by the older Sixsmith and prompts him to call Louisa. Mm. Um, Cavendish is calling around um, friends asking for loans. Oh yes, he's trying, trying, trying to trying to sell his writing desk, claiming that it's uh, Charles Dickens's. But then is told that no, that's already in the Dickens yeah. Museum. Well, I've got Emily Bronte's writing desk. Yes, <laughs> but he's getting nowhere. He winds up deciding to call his estranged brother, played by Hugh Grant. Yeah, they have a bad relationship, provoked by I think their mutual interest in. Georgette, played, yes. by, played by Ben Whishaw. Really? Okay, I didn't... Yeah, again, didn't pick up on that at all. I picked up on Hugo, because this is one of the distracting prosthetic jobs, yeah. I think, is... is I, I, I'll stop talking about it in a bit, because I'm starting in danger of sounding like a stock vocal, but there are points when you just go, well, that's somebody in prosthetics. You know, it doesn't... Did this film win any Oscars? Or because it, frankly, it deserves to have been nominated for a lot of awards. It was nominated for a few awards: um, Critics' Choice Awards, the German Film Awards, of mm. course. One nomination from the Golden Globes for its score. Okay. Um, produc- yeah. Production design and uh, well, the Saturns liked it. Okay. Um, local. Uh, Film yeah. critics associations, but, but nothing else major. I suppose potentially it's because if it's technically a German film, I guess the Oscars wouldn't really. They might get best foreign. It might get nominated for a for, There's a foreign feature award, isn't there? Yes, like. but it has to be in a foreign language. Right. I wonder if it just fell into. I don't know why I'm sitting here imagining the Oscars rec- uh, represent some kind of zenith of filmmaking. Anyway, but well, exactly. It just feels like the film deserved to be patted on the head a bit because, yeah, um, it's it's a huge achievement, mm. regardless of whether or not you like the film. Yeah, so much effort went into this. Um, it 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 split the vote quite a bit. It was on a lot of best of the year lists and a okay. lot of worst of the year lists yeah, okay. with people really taking against it. Uh, I think there was a certain amount of feeling that Wachowski should stay in their lane. Mm. Which, uh, yeah, I mean, they've done some blockbuster movies. Okay, you're allowed to do other stuff. Yeah. Also, you know, they're women and people don't like it when women make films that are good. Yeah, possibly. <laughs> The um the way the film was produced was also unusual because you know, with the 
with having three directors um the wachowskis directed the ewing story and the two future stories tickford directed the other two on his own but on post-production all three worked together as a unit right interesting because it, it, it if nothing else it meant that they could actually get through yeah, yeah. filming yeah. faster because they would have multiple units shooting at once hmm. um sorry i've completely derailed where we were now <laughs> now i've got it i've got it here it's all very neatly laid out i made a real effort to, yeah, to yeah. write my notes clearly this time yes. so i could tell what was going on um ewing is poking about in the um in the hold of the ship and is suddenly attacked by Ortua, the man who is being whipped on the pillory, who has managed to escape from slavery and is stowing away, and says, no, I'll, I will work my passage. Mm. Um, and he says that either Ewing can help him or Ewing can kill him because he is not going yeah. back. Well, they're because, yes, both things are basically, you, if, he, if he just hands him over to the captain, you're killing him just... Uh, yeah. With more steps, basically. Yeah, there's... Because there's already, again, been an exchange, hasn't there, where Ewing is... They make eye contact during the whipping scene, and that's the point when Ewing faints. Um, So he kind of feels there's a connection there. Um, I'm struggling again. This is the problem. The moment you start talking about connections between characters, you immediately start trying to work out whether they meet up in other sections of the that well i'm sure they probably do what well, this ch- this film needs like a chart or something <laughs> well wikipedia's page on it has for a cast list actually has a grid okay of the actors and the characters they play in the different segments so it makes it quite easy to check mm. um unfortunately the two actors are up opposite ends of the list so i've got Ooh, to scroll yeah. up and down to find out where they are um david gayazi who plays auteur also plays lester ray Although that's really only in pictures, right? Yeah. And the duophysite, which is one of the the um, mm, he does turn the, up the, the prescient who um, Merenim talks to over her three D video phone. Uh, okay, right. So they again they don't meet no, again, no. but it's their actions and the consequences of their actions mm, that ripple but, outwards yeah. and onwards. Um, Merenim needs Zachary's help to travel through the Kona territory because she needs to get somewhere to contact colonies uh, off-world. Whilst Louisa arrives at Sixsmith's Hotel where he's going to hand over a copy of the report on the Swanaki station. However, in his room, Sixsmith is confronted by a man, Bill Smoke, played by Hugo Weaving, Mm -hmm. who shoots him in the head and then just pops the gun in his hand to make it look like suicide. Yes. Um, Louisa finds Sixsmith's body, but also finds the letters. Yeah, that's it. That Sixsmith has kept the letters from Frobisher for all these years and, and rereads them. Um, a conductor visits Ayres' home and is impressed by uh, the new music. Oh, that's a German conductor. A German conductor, played by Hugo Weaving. Oh, Maybe right, the right. nicest character yeah, because yeah. he's not actively horrible. No, no, he's just a Nazi. Well, he says he's ignorant of the Nazis, that there's a sort of a lack of concern. Okay. Maybe um, I'm because he introduces Well, this is the point, isn't it, where they talk about why 
uh, Jim Broad, in, in the Frobisher segment, they talk about why Jim, why the German composer didn't marry Jim Broadbent's then wife. Instead, he introduced them, and it's because she's Jewish. Yes. Um, so he has no particular concern yeah. about knowing Jews. Just doesn't want to marry he one. He just, yeah. Yeah. He's playing it safe. But it ties into the running theme about slavery as yes. well. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Um, Merinim and Zachary nearly fall from a bridge as they're travelling across. And remembering the prophecy, oh yes, um, Zachary takes them both underneath and hide as the Kona pass, which transitions to Cavendish on his train, remembering a story from his past. Mm. And Zachary uh, recalls the Book of Sonmi. Have this in, this embroidered book mm. with this sort of front cover, just sort of made out of cross stitch, and a recurring monologue. Our lives are not our own. From womb to tomb, we are bound to others, past and present. And by each crime and every kindness, we birth our future. The wisdom that they live by in yeah. uh, in Zachary's time. Um, Ewing is saving food for Autour as uh, uh, Louisa reads the letters. And Sonmi sees the city sprawl for the first time. Oh, that's right. And it includes old Tokyo, doesn't it? Old Seoul. Old Seoul, yes. uh, I mean, they're all old souls, aren't they? Well, yes, yeah, yeah. But um, the the city looks partially underwater. Mm-hmm. And there's some passing comment, isn't there, about if sea levels keep rising, then they'll have to relocate Neosol as well or something. Yeah. It's established in the book that there is apparently very little surviving civilization outside the area. Um, Autour is found by the the other sailors. Uh, I think, actually, um, I've managed to forget his name, the... The the lawyer guy, the law talking guy, Ewing, Ewing, um, Ewing, must remember J R Ewing. I just think, of, yeah, um, Ewing actually tells the captain about him because by that point he's oh, yes. convinced he can speak up for he can speak up for him, which initially looks like it's going to go about as well as you'd expect it to. Um, they don't they challenge him to lower the top sail or something, yeah, and then Tom. Hanks, who at this point is playing the evil captain, Doctor Goose. No, he's playing. No, he's Henry Goose. Oh, the captain, right. Captain Molyneux, is Jim Broadbent. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, somebody is going to shoot or to yeah. as his. Uh, I, and this was the point when I kind of realised that I'd become emotionally invested in the storyline. Yeah, because this was the point when I was genuine. I, I just, you know, I assumed that the film apart from the sort of moments of comedy with Jim Broadbent and the other one, seemed to be trending a little bit more towards the Blake. And unfortunately, I assumed he was going to die. And I was kind of surprised at how upset I was that that was going to happen. So I was also quite relieved when it didn't happen. But well, that's... Um, well, Tua mentions that he'd previously been a sailor. Mm. And it's gone into more detail in the book where he actually sailed all over most of the Pacific, which is why he knows how to speak yeah. English so well. Uh, and he's probably more experienced than most of the sailors on the ship anyway yeah. but Ewing indirectly saves his life by giving him an opportunity to escape from slavery and then directly saves his life by jostling the, shoulder, the, the, the sailor that's actually going to shoot him yeah in uh, 
in the heir's home, Frobisher sleeps with Jocasta mm. as his wife. But he sees that as an act of service as well. Um, Ayres is very old, very frail. In the book, he's blind. Okay. Jocasta is played by Halle Berry in Whiteface, which is not great, but I, you know you know what the makers are trying to do. Yeah. It's not it's not as simple as saying, "Oh, blackface is bad," yeah. which obviously it is. But there is a context to it here. They're reaching for something greater than that. They're reaching for something more complex. Yeah, it's true, and it's very easy to be quite absolutist about it and go, "Well, yeah, you." But the, the trouble is, this film almost operates as an exception to what would you know? You normally, yeah, of course, it would be. Un, uh, of course, it would be inappropriate for western actors to play korean characters or you know whichever but it does feel like this film isn't is a bit of an exception to those to those rules you can't compare this to something like the black and white minstrel show well no definitely not because that's the thing that's you know it's Mm. it's using the appearance of other races as a way of denigrating them Mm. this film is not doing that by any means it's if anything it's trying to say the opposite it's trying to say you know that there the, the, is no everyone is the same. Yeah, we uh, we have differences, and times change and relationships change. But underneath it, we are the same human yeah. souls over and over again. And I think that it helps that they have this multi-ethnic cast. Mm. And it was controversial when it came out because mm. because of this. And, so, and well, the Wikipedia yeah. page has yeah. a section on controversy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which is totally fair. Mm. But the context is, I think, justifying all of it. Yeah, yeah. Normally, I would be. I, uh, normally, I would wouldn't be quite because uh, what was the film? Was it Ghost in the Shell? Yeah, where they and that 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 fumbles it quite badly. Yeah, I was. That's what I was going to say. Uh, but this is, like I say, this film is genuinely trying to do something different. And if they'd cast a Japanese actor in the lead role of Ghost in the Shell instead of Scarlett Johansson, yeah, that fun. would not have been a problem. Yeah, yeah but they had to have a movie star mm. and the film wasn't even that good. Well, yeah. So, yes. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so Cavendish goes to the house uh, in, in his memory and we see a flashback mm. of him as a young man. He has a birthmark on his leg. Okay. Um, and he's in bed with his girlfriend, Ursula. But suddenly her family comes home. Uh, the cat startles him as he's trying to climb out of the window. Oh, it's more... No, the cat's concealing his modesty. Oh, yes, that's it. Um, yeah, and the cat, scr- the cat objects to it, uh, to it and, yeah, scratches him and he falls backwards out of the window. Again, a nice little moment of physical comedy, but more like something out, like there's something about Mary or something like that. Well, and the punchline is that when he had to explain the cause of the accident, he said, pussy. <laughs> but in the present day... He looks through the window. Ursula is now older, mm. played by Susan Sarandon. She seems to have a family of her own. They're enjoying a, you know, whatever it is they're doing together. And he's too shy to ring the bell. Yeah. Um, there's a knock on the door of the abbess, and a girl has been poisoned. I think it is it Zachary's nef- uh, niece. Yes. Catkin. Yeah, yeah, Catkin. That's it. Yes, she's trod on a scorpion fish. Yeah. And she's gonna die. Yeah. Uh, while Sonmi sees a surgeon who's going to ha- going to remove her explosive collar. Mm. The surgeon, an elderly Korean man, played by Halle Berry. 
Okay, didn't plot that one. Originally to have been an elderly Korean woman, played by Tom Hanks. Okay. <laughs> but they, I think, I can't remember why they changed it. Just thought, why not? Yeah. I think because it, it doesn't really fit in with the trajectory of Tom Hanks's no. characters. No, it might have fumbled it. Yeah, it sort of yeah. does. I mean, it, it would mean, though, that Tom Hanks plays two characters in the same story because he's also in that as the actor playing Cavendish mm. in the Hollow movie. So he'd actually be playing seven characters in a six-story film. Yeah, well... Yeah. But again, it's in separate time periods. Yeah, yeah. He might have fit there because the the surgeon is sort of slightly weird and off-putting, but is also working for the rebels. I suppose so. But I think the whole thing about the last story, the Zachary one, is that Tom Hanks's character has to choose to do the right thing. And so having somebody in the one preceding it who arguably is already doing the right thing. I don't know. You it's could, fine. It's, nobody would have... They could have paid the surgeon off. Yeah, yeah, He's, exactly, ha- he's happy. Yeah, to, yeah he'll, he'll work for anyone for the right price. Yeah, that might have been... A, that, that, it would have been an easy fix, yeah. Oh, I've left off a bit. Um, ah, yes, yeah. <laughs> I misunderstood my own note there. Yeah. Um, Louisa goes to a record shop. Oh, right, yes, yeah. And asks about... Um, Robert Frobisher's Cloud Atlas sextet mm. because she's read about it in the letters. And the clerk, played by uh, Ben Wishaw, sure. says, you know, we happen, we just happen to have a yeah. copy and brings out this horrible 70s mm-hmm. day-glow orange cover. But she starts to listen to it. Frobisher's music is threaded throughout the whole mm. um, score by Tikva, who generally writes his own scores. Um Reinhold Heil and Johnny Klimek. It's an absolutely beautiful mm. score. And it's remarkable that it it spans so many different styles and genres and tones, but it feels completely unified. Yeah, it always fits, yeah. Um, it is a sextet because it's six pieces all merging together in perfect harmony across the six stories. Um. Unfortunately, you cannot buy that album. <laughs> really, there is a soundtrack, of course. Yeah, yeah. But um, you yeah. would have thought, yeah, they do. They they should just do replicas. Yeah, I suppose if the film wasn't success, if if the film was more successful, yeah. Mm. You, if the film was more successful, you could probably buy little pop cap figures with interchangeable heads or something. Oh God, that would be awful. <laughs> um, Zachary appeals to Marilyn for help, uh, arguing that he that he's owed yes. something after after the bridge. And agrees to t- guide her to the devil's door, mm. and in return, um, he gets the he, um, curing thing. Yes, um, one of them does a, a bit of a distraction, mm. while the other administers um, an antivenom to Catkin. Um, Cavendish arrives at Aurora House, where mm. he's going to hide out and, and signs in, um, while uh, Sonmi. Now in her new little flat, looks at her new clothes and watches the restored version of the clip, mm. which is Cavendish played by Hank storming out of the room. Um, Cavendish wakes up in his hotel room and finds a woman going through his bags. Um, Nurse Noakes, played by Hugo Weaving, yes, looking like a 
demonic Victoria Wood. And it was Nurse Noakes. I, I think this was this was the one that that foxed me, and I'm sitting there going, I I know that's somebody. Yeah, I just couldn't quite. They've done quite a good job again of of concealing Hugo, despite the fact that he's actually got dialogue. He does a very good job of concealing his identity. I think. Yeah. He's almost like the guy's an actor. <laughs> um, and Kavanagh starts kicking up a storm and swearing, mm. and she slaps him hard across the face. Yeah. And says that because he's new, this time she won't make him eat soap powder. Eating soap. Oh, yes, of course. Um, hmm. Louisa arrives at the Swanaki plant to talk to the manager, Lloyd Hooks, and Joe Napier, the head of security. Cavendish complains at the front desk and gradually realises that Aurora House is an old folks' home specifically for those people whose families want to get rid of them. Mm. And he starts blustering and says, oh, this is against the, 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 the Anti-Incarceration Act. Oh, I'm, I'm not going to be subjected to criminal abuse. Yeah. And it's just thrown away. Yes. It's, the way that <clears throat> things said in the heat of the moment, wind up taking up such great significance yeah. at later times. He had no possible way of knowing that this blustering irritation would wind up causing a revolution and the foundation of a new religion. <laughs> no. I should be more careful with some of the stuff I write on Twitter. <laughs> You're telling me. <laughs> um, Sonmi watches the whole of the film with her, her rescuer, Heijong, whilst Cavendish tries to make a run for it. Mm. He manages to get out of the building. And All the other little little old people are watching him as he's going, Silent Green is people! And I was going to say, yes, this is where... And as you say, having had just had the comment about eating soap powder as well, yes, yeah, yeah to then get the Silent Green is people reference. But he's um, overcome by the gardener and carried back in. At which point in his story, he has a massive stroke. Oh. And that's the end of the first half and it ends this bizarre cliffhanger. Oh, right. And he gradually recovers from his stroke. Hmm, huh. okay. Which doesn't happen. We don't have that at yeah, all in yeah. the film. Because even with the running time that we have, we've got to cut it down quite yeah, a bit. Yeah, God, yeah. Sonmi's um, story is cut down massively from the book. Um, she gets taken off to you know, live in a... Um, a, a university lab for oh, some right. time and, and reads all the books that she can and educates herself mm. and become you know, develops her political consciousness and her philosophical awareness. Yeah. In the film, it's very much telescoped down. It's one moment of revelation, yeah, yeah. Um, it's said that um, you can maintain power through gifts and Sonmi quotes Solzhenitsyn as he's going through this, this yeah. sort of power learning of these holograms that come up and a uh, um, a holographic teacher figure, mm. if you recall, played by Susan Sarandon. Mm, yeah. um, if you rob every, if you rob a man of everything, that man will no longer be in your power. Yeah, because you have nothing left to lose. Therefore, survival demands courage. Well, and then, of course, Jim Broadbent, in his segment, quotes or says he'll be in, in exile like Solzhenitsyn. I can't remember if he's used that quote at this point. I think it crops up earlier in the film. I think it does right at the start. Yeah. 
But of course, it, uh, when it gets reused at the end of his story, it's suddenly got a different context. Yeah. Um, Hooks meets uh, Louisa, and he's a really sleazy customer. Mm. He's a proper Hugh Grant character. Yes. Um, and he sort of excuses himself and says, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll find someone to show you around, smart, smart. He actually, I think, he vaguely reminded me of the um, the weatherman from Anchorman. There's just something about the way he looks. He's <laughs> incredibly 70s. Brick Tamlin. Brick Tamlin, that's it, yes. I love lamp. That's it. <laughs> Do you really love the lamp, Brick, or are you just saying that about the first thing you saw? I love lamp. <laughs> I ate a big red candle. Um, but Louisa notices that mm. uh, Sixsmith's office is nearby with most of his name chipped off the yeah. door and goes in for a poke about. Um, Cavendish calls his brother Dennis. Dennis is, in fact, an investor in Aurora yeah. House. He deliberately sent him there as revenge. Yeah, to get him, or get him out of the way, yes. Uh, because he knows about the affair mm. Cavendish had with Georgette. Um as is telling um, Frobisher about a dream he's had, and the dream is exactly Papa Song's, mm. an underground restaurant where all the waitresses have the same face. And I've written a note here, oh, yeah. and it says Road to Heaven. I don't, sorry, I can't give you any context for that. Neither thing, can I. I. How st- I, I've, I've no mm. idea what, what that's supposed to represent. Um, one of my occasional fugue states, maybe. <laughs> um, but it gives Frobisher a moment of connection with Ayres. Mm. Ayres really lets his guard down for, yeah. I think, the only time. And he's really disturbed by this dream. And he can't explain why. Mm. Well, in the sense that the music is just slipping away. It's just slipping away from him and slipping away. Yeah. Yeah. The relationship um, was based on that between... Um, Sibelius and his amanuensis as well. Okay. Sibelius was blind, uh, as as is in the book. Right. I forget the name of his amanuensis. Eric. It was something very weirdly sort of boring and prosaic. Eric yeah. something. No idea. Sorry. Oh, it'll come to mind. Um, and at this moment, Tom Hanks finally enters Louisa's story when mm. Isaac Sachs steps into Sixsmith's office and asks uh, if he can help at all. Yeah. And he's a friendly fellow. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Sonmi has been found. The police are attacking. Mm. And it suddenly turns into a proper sci-fi action I was movie. Say, suddenly it is just it's sort of like The Matrix or something like that. Yes, there's all weird science fiction gadgets and lots of fighting. Yeah, this, this extendable ladder that, that uh, fires onto the next building and and hovering helicopters and things. Mm. And we cut between that and Atua lowering the topsail, you know, climbing the yes. climbing the mast uh, no, hand over hand and running along the, the rigging and looping it all together and then grabbing the rope, jumping off the end, out, swinging out into the, over the water and unfurling the entire sail in one go, mm. which actually impresses the other sailors. Yeah. Um, as I say, I'd become quite. Emo- I turned out I'd become quite emotionally invested in the story at this point. So I was relieved to see that it was. Uh, it's, it seemed to be heading towards a reasonable ending. Well, that's the thing: is that the film makes a point of every story really has a happy ending. 
Yeah. Except possibly for the uh, except possibly for the Frobisher one. Oh yes, yes, that's true. It's very. But but then again, you could argue that. I mean, we're jumping forward a bit. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. Frobisher is able to complete his life's work mm. and end his life on his terms. True. I suppose there's also a case for arguing that the story doesn't end. Just because the st- Frobisher kills himself, the story doesn't end because Sigsmith continues on into the next story. Yeah. Although, of course, he is then killed, ironically, in exactly the same way that Frobisher was killed. Mm. Um, Sachs, Isaac Sachs, shows Louisa around. He mentions that he's supposed to be in Seoul. Oh, yes. Yeah, that's right. And on a balcony, they even share a joint. Hmm. And um, he says, oh, oh, don't worry, I'm cool. He's such a, he's a dork. Yeah. yeah. But he's, something lights up in him. Hmm. Um, he he says he thinks he ought, he should be nervous, but doesn't know why he isn't. Hmm. Um, the interrogator, Somi's interrogator, now that she's in custody, notes that she is a political problem. Yes. And that there is a natural order of things. Uh, Heiju having apparently fallen to his death. Well, this is also the point when the film pulls a bit of a feint, isn't it? Because you could believe that the scenes you've seen earlier of her being interviewed, that effectively the film has caught up with um, uh, caught up with itself, but that obviously turns out not to be the case. No. Um, and is that the... F- when Tom Hanks and Halle Berry's character meet up in 73... Is that effectively the first proper meeting of two significant characters outside of their other story? I think it might be. I can't think of, because you obviously Tom Hanks and Halle Berry are in the uh, 130 years after the fall story. Oh, they yeah the um, so they've already kind of met there, and I think this might then be the first point where. Um, may <laughs> yes, I believe so. Kind of yeah, because they again in the. Dermot Hoggins' party. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's they, true. They, they share a look of something. I guess so, but this is a proper... Yeah, you know, they share dialogue. Rather yeah. Than, and there's a case... God, if I really wanted to get pretentious about this. Obviously, the whole point of the last story is that it, that Tom Hanks is showing Halle Berry's character where she wants to go. He's kind of doing that in the nuclear story one as well because he gives her a copy of the report yeah so he kind of does the same thing twice um well as i say well it's like music exactly the way that george lucas said that patterns between the original and prequel trilogies of star wars were Mm. repeating and they they rhyme like poetry in this film it does that yeah yeah but it's not like poetry it's like music yeah Repeated motifs coming back and interweaving mm. in new combinations. Um, and the Wachowskis and Tom Tickfer are better filmmakers than George Lucas. Yeah, well, yes. I think, yeah, we know that by now. Um, Henry Goose has drugged Ewing. Mm. This is beca- the point, I think, where we learn that he's actually poisoning him. Yeah. Um, while uh, Luisa and Isaac talk about Carlos Castaneda and the, the connection the two of them seem to be developing and I think Louisa says that he should do whatever he can't not do 
that he too is concerned about the the power station that something is wrong there yeah and he gets her a copy of the report doesn't he and leaves it inside her engine or something yeah um I'm jumping way yeah, ahead. Zachary and Merenim talk about why the fall happened. And in, in their dialect, they say it's because the Oldens hungered f- for far more smart. Because the Oldens had the smart. <laughs> um, Isaac is uh, on a plane. And uh, Bill Smoke gets off just as uh, other yeah. people are getting on. And I thought this bit... It, it's interesting, you made a comment earlier... Where, because Bill Smoke leaves a bomb under Tom Hanks's seat and the whole plane is blown up. And I kind of had one of those moments of going, well, that's just, that wouldn't happen. Um, it just seemed like a step too far into sort of para- paranoid conspiracy Air- through airport novels, yeah, yeah. basically. Uh, but of course, having said that this particular section of the book is written in the style of a trashy airport novel. That suddenly makes more... Weirdly, it makes more sense with that context than it does in the film, I mm. think. And in narration, um, Isaac talks about how his life had been heading in one direction and now suddenly it's going in a different one. Um, Goose cuts one of the buttons, this green glass button from Ewing's shirt, yeah. and it is the same button that Zachary will find on the beach at the beginning of his story yeah. hundreds of years later. Everything connects together. And as you say, Louisa finds a copy of the report inside her car. Yeah. Um, Frobisher is feverishly writing. Cavendish is, gets a message of a, a secret meeting somewhere. Um, Sonmi looks out of her cell. And Merinim and Zachary reach a, uh, a hilltop and look over the remains of Honolulu. And that's the midpoint of the book. Mm, okay. That's where all the, all the cliffhangers come together. Right. Um, as you say, the, the, plane Zachary, the plane Isaac is in explodes as he comes to the, the realisation and admission that he is in love with Louisa. Um, Frobisher plays the music from Ayers' Dream. Mm. Yes, it turns out his composition is the music from Air's Dream, isn't it? Yeah, that he's some as somehow overheard it and it's mm. merged in his mind. Um, Sonmi is taken from her cell, just as Luisa's car is rammed off the bridge, mm. connecting her with the mainland. And Frobisher describes the Cloud Atlas Sextet as being the imagined meetings of people in different lives over and over again. Um, Ayers is astonished by the work. He thinks it's extraordinary. And that's why he's going to claim sole credit mm. for it. Well, there's a... I don't quite know how... There's a moment when Frobisher is almost looks like he's about to kiss Ayers. Yeah. Um, and Ayers is just scornful and mocking, incredibly scornful and mocking about it. Yeah. Um and that's when the whole mood that the whole mood turns, and you suddenly you you realise quite what a nasty piece of work he is. Yeah. Um, because he basically just says, "Well, of course I looked into your background, and you're 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 a nobody, and I'm going to this is my symphony." And uh, yeah, so it's quite a nice little reversal in something because you certainly don't see it coming. Um, I'm struggling now. 
No, if I, I may have had something significant to say there, but it's gone. So Frobisher is now also imprisoned. He's also in a form of slavery. Yes. And it's the the Moors of the time, um, like the organised religion that's mm. that's being held over him as uh, as his prison. What's the um, Solzhenitsyn quote again? When you take away everything, you lose all control over a man. I'm paraphrasing very badly. It's yeah. Um, well, you could argue, of course, that that Frobisher's reached that point because, as I said, well, I'm taking away your symphony, and there's nothing you can do about it. And that's the point when he slips out of his control because, at that point, he genuinely has nothing to lose. Mm. But we get several escape plans mm. all merging together in different in different points. Um, Frobisher starts making plans to flee, um, while Sixsmith elsewhere is packing a bag. Um, ah, see, I've written yeah, the wrong. Yeah, so Sixsmith in the thirties, not Sixsmith in the Sixsmith in the yeah young Sixsmith. <laughs> um, Cavendish follows the note and discovers a secret meeting mm. of several of the other inmates, uh, including uh, Mister Meeks. Yes, who can only say, "I know, I know," while. Um, Sonmi is rescued by Heiju, mm. disguised as a policeman who, again, fantastic action scene of yeah, yeah. him rescuing her. Um, yeah. What have I written there? Oh, it's Frobisher who talks about being as blind as Ewing, whose friend was poisoning him. Okay, yes. Um, whilst Henry is just now cutting his ring off and just casually taking oh, yeah, his yeah, property. Just, yeah. In Aurora House, a mock fight breaks out between Cavendish mm. and some of his co-conspirators so that they can steal a phone. So now we have all these these action scenes yeah. all unfolding at once. Um, Frobisher takes a gun from Ez's room and, and considers shooting him dead in yeah. his sleep. Um, Merinim and Zachary are climbing a rock face uh, and Merinim loses her loses her footing, but Zachary catches her, even though the rope burns his hands. Rope are burning, can't let go. Mm. And Zachary uh, and Georgie, again walking walking across the cliff face, uh, says that he should let go. Yes, you know. yeah. We have the fantastic action scene uh, in Neo Soul of the the escape and the chase, and it's mm. all very sort of Tron Legacy, Blade Runner. And there's uh, there's another weird sort of moment of verbal comedy where the police are announced that they're, they're not just told that they're allowed to use l- lethal. lethal force. They're actually specifically or they're they're allowed to use excessive force. <laughs> That's actually the fright because I sort of watched it, went, and then of course they're immediately just firing off missiles in all directions and blowing up cars at random. Yeah, it was just quite a nice little line. Um, I'm gonna have to go back and see how this film was advertised. I. I'm struggling to imagine what the trailer could be like. When the film was first advertised, it had a very unusual trailer mm. because it was introduced by the Wachowskis and oh. Tikva. And the Wachowskis had generally been extremely private. They did not give interviews. Mm. Details of their personal life were not in the public domain. So Lana... Um, appeared on camera I think, in, in, a, in, a, in an official capacity, I think for the first time since her transition. Mm. Uh, Lily had yet to transition. Um, and they spoke about a little about the film. And then 
the tra- the actual trailer for the film runs six minutes. Wow. <laughs> because there's so much ground to cover. Yeah. And, God, I'm just tearing up thinking about it. It was such an overwhelming experience. Mm. You got a sense of the scale of this film, of the, the time and the space and the emotion and sensation that it was encompassing. And that was what made me think, I have got mm. to see this movie. This looks extraordinary even if it's bad yeah this has got to be some kind of titanic achievement it's an incredible trailer mm, okay i'll have to go yeah i'll go back and look at that one up and score scored partly with traditional yeah. trailer music but also with the score from the film and it's so emotional and so captivating mm it's really yeah, yeah. it's really extraordinary. I mean, I didn't feel like that watching the Force Awakens trailer when it yeah. first came out or anything else. I don't think I've ever had that reaction to a trailer. Ayres no. finds Frobisher on the verge of leaving and uh, is trying to take the yeah, the manuscript for the sextet off him. Frobisher pulls a gun on him and Ayres taunts him, calling him a coward, or like like all of your kind. He grabs the gun, but Frobisher fires, and he flees. Mm. And we see the camera pans down, and the bullet casing has rolled across the floor next to a, a table leg, which is propped up with the other half of the Ewing book. Okay, I failed to pick up on that at all. I saw. I obviously remember the shot of the bullet coming down, but didn't pick up on the Frobisher story. Okay, so that's yeah, that's what happened to the rest of the book. Yeah. Um, and the music sort of then sort of overlaps onto uh, Henry Goose trying to get hold of the key to mm. Ewing's lockbox. As now the point of no return is being reached for all the characters. Yeah. Um, Heiju and Sonmi are trapped in a tunnel under the dam. They get out through ducting just before the whole thing floods and yeah. kills all the pursuing police. Louisa manages to escape from her sinking car. And Zachary and Merinim arrive at the, um, the transmission water. station, yeah. and it's full of skeletons. Mm. And at the back of it is a statue of Sonmi. And it's it's a startling moment, I think, because you realise it's not just this folk tale passed down in this little hand stitched yeah. book. This is a proper. This is a real thing. Yeah. yeah. Um. Uh, Louisa's let back in by her neighbour, Javier, who's this young teenager who hangs out with her. Mm. And she says, oh, I'll, I'll tell you all about it in the morning, but there is already a man in her flat. Um, Sonmi is taken to meet with other senior members of the union, the rebellion, particularly seeing uh, another Sonmi fabricant working as a prostitute. Mm. Um, Marinin tells... Zachary about who Sonmi really was that she was born a Darwin and a smart right uh, and slow and as she's explaining Georgie is whispering in his ears yes, oh, telling you yes, all yes. these lies and this is kind of one of those points where I wouldn't mind knowing the trouble is uh, this is the point I wouldn't mind knowing a little bit more about what Georgie is but any attempt to explain it would completely mock up those so I'm glad 
that it's just left as a complete mystery. Perhaps you could argue that Zachary has two souls. Yeah, possibly. And that it's the struggle between those two, his mm. his good his good nature as himself and his evil nature as Georgie. And it's that struggle and his ultimate choice that is the Yeah the end point for his story. That he chooses kindness and yes. uh, and share it sounds almost facile kindness and sharing and goodness but the whole story is about people who exploit and consume and imprison and enslave others um louisa is ventures into her flat and discovers that the man there is actually joe napier the head of security for the plant and the reason he's there is because her father saved his life when they were in yeah in Vietnam and he owes her for that so he wants to help um, he explains that it was Bill Smoke that the plane explosion has been blamed on the Palestinian Liberation Organization yes on page 14 of my notes wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that Smoke has been paid for by oil lobbyists they are well aware that the reactor is flawed and could cause a catastrophic meltdown, and they don't want it fixed mm. because if the disaster does happen, that will be the end of nuclear power. Yep. Um, Zachary angrily strikes out at the console that um, Merinim is manipulating as she finally explains that the reason she's calling the colonists off world is the prescience are dying out as well. That's it, yes, yeah. Life on Earth is winding down, but there are people elsewhere who can help. That was it. Sorry, I had a vague moment of trying to work out because it's pre- they, they don't quite do they pronounce it prescience? I can't remember because I couldn't work out at one point whether they were saying like pre-science as if these were the people that still had access to the old science. Oh, I see. Um, well, no, I uh, yeah, I think it's in the book prescient. Yeah, it would make more sense. Yeah, um, Ayres has survived, but he's called the police, and so now yes. Frobisher is on the run, um, and the dish is activated. That's it, yes. Uh, and it unfurls, and it's sort of the the big sort of CGI moment in the trailer is this this mm. building unfurling like a rose, uh, and the dish uh, coming out from inside. Um, Sonmi listens to Heiju's heart as they lay together. That moment mm. of human connection. Um, while Frobisher continues to write, and every day visits the Scott Monument mm. and there's a flashback to he and Sixsmith in a china shop of of wrecking the place yes. but there's a, a shot of the two of them standing together posed like conductors at a crescendo as the crockery falls around them and, yeah. and it's in slow motion and it's this perfect transcendent moment you can understand totally why that would be seared in their memories mm. as this perfect instant of time. He makes some comments as well, and I, again, I, annoyingly, I can't remember exactly what he says. It's something along the lines of that music isn't just about tone. It can be about... And he's demonstrating this by crashing, smashing crockery and using that as an example. Yeah, yeah, it's a very nice shot of, of, of the way... And this, what, what's also quite nice about it is it's quite non-naturalistic. The crockery that's falling down... There's no way it can be 
coming from they haven't thrown it up in the air it's literally just like raining down from the ceiling like snow or something it's a memory yeah yeah life is like a garden moments can be had but not preserved except in memory Leonard Nimoy's last words and as Frobisher says the boundaries between noise and sound are conventions that's it one may transcend any convention if one can only conceive of doing so. Yes. Zachary and Merenim sit by a fire and also share a, a transcendent moment of just quietness while Frobisher is being blackmailed by the hotelier where he's mm. staying and winds up paying for his silence with his own waistcoat, which the book makes clear is actually Sixsmith's waistcoat. Yes. Um, which Frobisher has been keeping on him so that he always has something of sickness by his heart. Yeah. Um, Louisa has the brainwave of contacting Megan, Sixsmith's niece. Yeah, because again, there's a line about it being a cheap thriller, isn't there? Where the kid is like, they're sort of, she's talking to the security officer from the power plant, and the kid goes, well, Why don't you speak to Megan? And they and it turns out he's just run a pencil over the envelope, and they've yeah. got it's got Megan's address on it. And he actually makes a comment about what is it? That's the first rule in every mystery mystery novel or something. There's there's a moment where it kind of acknowledges the sort of the deliberate cheesiness of it. The book makes clear, in fact, very clear indeed, that the thriller is written by an older Javier. Okay, right. that he immortalized. Hmm. This neighbour who he looked up to as the hero in a series of pulp novels. Right. And that Cavendish is initially somewhat um, uh, dismissive as he takes the manuscript with him to read on his way to Aurora House. Right, okay. But then later in the story he gets round to finally reading the second half and he engages with it a lot more and he realises, oh, this is this is actually pretty good and decides to take on the book as a publisher. Hmm. Um, the escape plan from Aurora House goes into action. They're going to call uh, one of the uh, patient's sons and say that they've died in the night, so yeah. they've got to come and do something about it. Um, they manage to uh, lock Nurse Noakes in Cavendish's room. They get into the car. They have no idea yeah, how to start it because they've, none of them have driven a car in 20 years. Um they eventually figure out just they have to press the button labeled start and that gets it going. Mr. Meeks suddenly appears. Mm. Yes, he comes in late, doesn't he? And as they as the engine kicks turns over and they drive off, who comes on the stereo? I don't remember. The biggest German pop star of all. David Hasselhoff? Yeah. Really? And what song is he singing? Is it I'm looking for freedom? Exactly. I'm slightly depressed by the fact that I know the name of David Hasselhoff's greatest hit, but yeah. It's a great song. I think it predates him quite a bit. I think it was originally a German song. Ah, Okay. Because it's famously, it's supposed to be the song he sung at the Berlin Wall, isn't it? Yeah. His big concert, yes. But it ties in because it's it's German, so it's a little to dig in the ribs for the film's origin. But it's it ties in all the themes of the movie. Mm. Well, and again, this, the whole escape plot does as well because they have to choose to go back for Mr. Meek. And if they hadn't chosen to go back for him, events later on would have un, would have would have happened very differently. By every action, we make our yeah. own future. Exactly. Um, 
yeah, they they make it out of the the building and they ram through the gates, and it's all terribly exciting. Yeah, yeah it's very yeah, very nice. Um, Artur is trying to tend to uh, Ewing, but Goose throws them out. Um, I've, I've, oh, and Louisa and Napier have set a trap for Bill Smoke, mm. as Louisa is the bait where Smoke will try and kill her. But um, there's a, as a as a car crash. I keep going through this. I just keep going through every this great chunks of this Louisa story. I remember watching it, thinking this is a bit contrived. This is a, and it makes it's so supposed much, to be. It's an airport know, thriller. It makes so much more sense if you realise it's an airport thriller. Yeah, but on those terms, it's actually pretty good. Oh yeah, yeah, it's great. <laughs> no, I've got I've got no complaints about the but but because of course that segment of the film is presented in quite a. I don't want to documentaries. It's presented as if this is is how it happened. Yeah, it's 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 a very sort of seventies French Connection I, yeah, type. I suppose maybe that police I thriller wasn't. Maybe I wasn't watching it in quite the right way because if I'd been watching it with the expectation that it was like the streets of San Francisco or something, I might have been a bit more prepared to accept some of the stuff that seemed a bit more contrived. Yeah, mm. I, it. It really demonstrates David Mitchell's mastery, I think, mm. that he writes all these these six stories in six very different styles, yeah. and they all work really well. I mean, as a, the Sonmi story, I think, is a, is a bit too long in the book. There's mm. a bit too much padding there. But you know, the Louisa Ray story is written as just a straightforward, pacey thriller. Yeah. If he wanted to, Mitchell could just write a pulp novel and make a lot of money, mm. but he's, nope, he's going to write proper serious books. Yeah. Have you read any of his other work? I've got to say, no, he's not a writer I've read at all, I don't think. I recommend Number Nine Dream, okay. which is, um, I mean, Cloud Atlas is obviously very complicated. Mm. Number Nine Dream is much more straightforward. It's still very literary and very elaborate and quite complex, but it is at least um, much more linear yeah. in its cool. structure. Um, Smoke steals another car and gives chase. Um while Cavendish and his friends are cornered in a pub, hmm. they 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 stop at the very first pub they see yeah. to have a celebratory drink, and uh, inside, everyone's watching the football match of Scotland versus England. And as the uh, Aurora House staff turn up um, and threaten them, Mister Meek suddenly pipes up. Will no one defend the honour of a Scotsman? Yeah, and all the reg- all the pub regulars turn around and look, and he explains that all these, all these people are after me and my pals, and it turns into a giant brawl, uh, which at one point ends up with a tooth flying across the pub and landing oh, in Cavendish's right, yes. pint. It's a weirdly matrixy moment, isn't it? It's completely because the rest of the fight sequence is quite it's quite sort of good natured and it's done in that way that you kind of it makes me immediately think of films about bands in Ireland or something <laughs> commitments or so. it's all that kind of you know there's a bit of slapstick somebody gets a barrel on their head and stuff like that but that tooth moment is almost deliberately out of place in it I, I it might be Tom Tick for just having a bit of fun yeah, at his yeah. co-director's expenses um they uh, the chase in San Francisco goes into a warehouse where they find an angry Latinx woman mm. played by Duna Bay, um, 
Louisa tries to explain what's going on, but no one no one seems to understand yeah. each other. Um, Smoke starts arguing with her as well and <laughs> wins the argument by shooting her dog. Yes. Goose finally shows his true colours, admits that he's been poisoning um, uh, Ewing for his gold and repeats that the weaker meat, the strong do eat. Mm. Um, and I've written, our only hope is to stop feeding on each other. Mm, yeah, nice. as, <laughs> as, as you pointed out, if they hadn't stopped and helped Mr. Meeks escape with them, mm. they would have been caught. Yeah. But it was their charity that winds up being their own salvation. Mm. And again, arguably, of course, the same with um, Ewing, where if he hadn't saved Alter, he wouldn't then now save his life at this moment in the film. Yeah, exactly. Um, Smoke finally corners Louisa and Napier and is then horribly beaten to death yep. by by the elderly Latinx woman. And it's fine. I had no problem with that. It was it was earned as far as I was concerned. Um Goose and Otua get into a fight, but Ewing recovers enough to bludgeon Goose with mm. his trunk of gold, which bursts open. Yes. Um Zachary and Merriam hear a war cry and see a fire in the distance. Um, while Frobisher is working in a frenzy, and um, Sonmi and Heiju go and see what exaltation actually is, mm. and you see the the fabricants going in, and they have oh, we'll just pop, pop, pop this on your head, and, yeah. uh, so we can take your collar off, and it fires a little um, pneumatic bolt yeah. right into their head and kills them, and then hooks go through their ankles, and they get dragged off, and they get turned into soap. Yep. Because Soylent Green is people. Exactly. Um, Zachary and Marion arrive back at the village and the place is burning to the ground and everyone is dead. The Kona chief is drunk and unconscious and Zachary remembers the prophecy of not to slit that throat. But he does anyway, doesn't he? Yes, he does. I think he's been pushed so far beyond any kind of you know he's 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 in no mood to show any mercy but again continuing that he makes a decision and the 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 consequences of that decision immediately come back on him yeah because it's it's the selfish act yes yeah it is isn't it yes it's the selfish act rather than the heroic act yeah the the selfless act will come around it's 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 karmic it's like Mm. being reborn in new lives yeah because it then ties back into ideas about religion if you do good things they'll come back at you yeah. if you do bad things you know bring an umbrella um frobisher finally finishes his work um catkin emerges from hiding and um the kona chief arrives um mm. because he wasn't the one who was killed i got that confused Sonmi is taken to the Big Island to make a broadcast to all the states and to the off-world colonies. And as she's broadcasting, there's a standoff between the Union rebels and the army. Mm. Um, Zachary and Marianne are chased into the forest. Georgie appears. Um, but... Oh, yes, that's right. But uh, Marianne saves the day at the last minute. Um He's almost uh, Zachary's almost strangled mm. with the cord around his neck, but he's able to, to break through it. Um, while Ewing is being tended by Autour, 
and we see that they have actually arrived now back in San Francisco. Um, Louisa meets Megan, who has a spare copy of the report and, ha- and happily hands it over, mm. while Louisa gives her the letters. Yes. Um, Frobisher takes one last visit to the uh, Scott Memorial. Justice Sixsmith is also there, and he deliberately avoids him. Yeah. Yes, I'm never, I, I wasn't sure if I'd missed something here, that Sixsmith suddenly, you're suddenly showing lots of sh- shots of Sixsmith sort of frantically packing and frantically travelling up to Scotland. I don't know whether I'd missed some vague reference to Frobisher sort of saying, or giving a clue as to what he was planning to do. But Frobisher, yes, deliberately sort of avoids him. Uh, yes. But he's still grateful for a chance to see him. Yeah. Says he, I watched you, watched you in that ridiculous hat that you always insisted on wearing. Um, he says, there's another world waiting for us, Sixsmith. Find me beneath the Corsican stars where we first kissed. Now, if my editor has done the usual excellent job, you won't have realised it took me three goes to get through that dialogue hmm. because uh, that's that's tough. It's uh, it made a big impression on me this mm. film. He said, wiping his eyes and losing his place. No, that's not it. That's that's not Paul McCartney. No. <laughs> no, I'm pretty that's, sure he's not in this. That's a di- uh, he's one of the few people who isn't in this film. Um, Heiju is killed in the assault, but Somi says that she will always love him. She recites the monologue she had about the womb to the tomb yeah. as he dies and the consequences of life rippling through eternity. Death is only a door, she says, and that heaven is a door closing. Heaven is a door opening, rather. Sorry. Ewing finally arrives home and is helped through the door by Autour, and we find more act as we recognise. And Sonmi's interrogation reaches an end as well. And she's told, you know, this this scheme you had, this rebellion, it was always doomed. Why, Why did you continue with it? And she replies that the truth must not be hidden even if no one believes it. Mm. But she thinks, she's looking her interrogator in the eye, she thinks that someone already does. Um, Ewing talks about how he owes his life to a self-freed slave. Mm. Uh, while Javier notes that Luisa's story would make a pretty good book. And we see Cavendish at the end of his story, as he said, writing an exile somewhere far away as Ursula comes and brings him a cup of coffee. Hmm. He finally had the nerve to talk to her. Um, Ewing and his wife, Tilda, played by Duna Bay, uh, announced that they're moving back east to work in the abolition movement. Um, Tilda notes that she's been afraid of her father her whole life, um, but now is going to do something about it. And I've written untold stories on margins of all these lives that Tilda has yeah. her own story oh, yeah, that we've yeah. seen almost nothing of, but we know it's there. Yeah. One thing I really like in, in films and stories in general is the suggestion that there's a, there's a world yes. going on outside. We see a bit of it we, and we're told that it's there. Just like an, an incidental character who has their own moment, yeah. who has their own life, their own problems, their own 
completely consuming narrative. And um, her father says, yeah, there, is, there is a natural order. Rebels do not fare well. Sonmi is executed. But it's a, it's a peaceful mm. execution, almost... It's in the same style as exaltation, I think, isn't it? I think, it is. Yeah. Um, and um, the uh, the reverend, not, not the reverend, Tilda's father, the Hugo Weaving character, oh, yeah. says, you know, all, all, all you're doing, all your efforts, it will amount to nothing. It will be a single drop in the ocean. And Ewing replies, and it's the last line of the book, what is an ocean? but a multitude of drops. He could almost have said, what is an avalanche, but a multitude of snowflakes. Yeah. And we go back to where we started with old Zachary telling the story by the fire. And one of the children listening to him says, oh, Grandpa Zachary, which, which of those up there is Earth? And he points up into the sky. And we see that Meronim is with him and... Mm. She's old. They've grown old together. Uh, Zachary has gone bald, and we see that he has the um, comet birthmark on his oh, head. Oh, I missed, I get, missed that. And they go back inside and look up into the sky as a comet streaks across. It's it's a huge film. I, I watched it in stages, and I think I got to the point where they fired off the message paused it went to make a cup of coffee came back and I just went I've got an hour left of this yeah um, but it doesn't outstay its welcome I think that's the thing that surprised me was it felt like a lot at, at that point it felt like a lot of the stories where you could have put the end up and, and a lot of those stories would have felt mostly complete because you already knew how the Frobisher story finished and things like that yeah but even in that process of winding things up it's not like the end of Lord of the Rings where you, know, you get the seven endings one after another after another and you just sit there in the cinema going, how much longer is this going to take? No, this, 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 this earns its running time, which surprised me a little bit. Maybe I've just seen too many bad films that don't. A benchmark I've always said is Lawrence of Arabia, mm. which even though it's the story of one man, it needs to be three and three quarter hours long yeah. because there is so much ground and so much much ground historically and psychologically to cover in that time mm. um cloud atlas is two hours 52 minutes and it feels as I, like i said it feels like it covers the entirety of the mm. human experience i've written here rich complex demands repeated viewings which i would recommend mm. a masterpiece that encompasses everything that it means to be human staged in a way that is what yeah. <laughs> was I was staggered at the time, and I still find it transcendent and profound. Um, it occurred to me, I was thinking about something else idly, mm. if I wanted to show a single film to an alien civilization to try and show them what human the human experience is, I'd show them this. Yeah. I don't think there's anything else that encompasses the human experience on such a grand scale 
No, nothing. I mean, I'm not expecting you to go up with a counterexample. Oh, no, if you no. can think of one, no, no, I'll be no, I impressed. Was gonna, I was going to say something fatuous like Gonks Go Beat, but you know. Um, I've not seen Gonks Go Beat. <laughs> I'm, I find I'm genuinely surprised by them. Um, no, it's. I can't think of another. I can't think of another film that, that sets out with that sort of level of ambition. Um. I'm sure there must be examples lurking out there. But, yeah, you know, it is that thing that, that they set out to make a film of an unfilmable novel. And not only did they manage it, the film is better than the book. Mm. The book is very good, but the film is a landmark achievement. It's one of my favourite films, and every time I've seen it, I love it more. Um... Since then, the Wachowskis have had mixed yeah. fortunes. Um, they moved to television with Sensate for Netflix. Um, Cancelled after its second season, I think. Well, that's pretty standard for Netflix, unfortunately. But it had such a huge and vocal fandom that Netflix were persuaded to commission a... I think two and a half hour <laughs> series finale movie right. to at least bring the series yeah. to a conclusion. That again is about, well, I'll tell you the premise. It's about eight people who share a nervous system that each can sense what the others experience. Okay. And they're all they're from all over the world. They're from different backgrounds, different races, different cultures, different languages. So again, it's about that the the importance of community, the transcendent nature of the human experience mm. in blasting through arbitrary boundaries of race and gender and sexuality. And also Freema Adjaman's in it and Sylvester McCoy had a recurring role. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. Then. Um, they tried to do a, a proper big blockbuster for Warner Brothers with Jupiter Ascending. Oh, gosh, of course, yeah. Yeah, it's not very good. It's. I think the problem was it's it's trying to force grow a new franchise, mm. um, so it feels very Wachowski like. Yeah. It feels very Matrixy, and it has some of the echoes of their previous ideas, like about slavery, about exploitation, about cannibalism, literally, because it's about aliens who um, consume the human essence to stay young. But it's all a bit dull and pedestrian. Yeah. It doesn't do anything particularly new or different. And it's to date their last film as a duo. That's a shame. Um, while Lily has gone on to work on other projects for television, Lana's last film was The Matrix Resurrections, mm. which was another massive commercial failure. So that's three at four in a row now? Yeah, they seem to specialise in making films that don't make any money. But the nice thing about Matrix Resurrections is, again... What a commercial failure. Yeah, if you're going to make a commercial failure, make one like that. Make the, make the movie you want to yeah, make yeah, and yeah. fuck the studio. Yeah, basically. <laughs> I, can't, I, I can't do anything except admire it as a two-fingered gesture of scorn at the studio, yeah. But also an incredibly sincere yeah. Oh, yeah. film. Yeah, it's not, just a, it's not a deliberately bad film. It's just... It's a, it's a great film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's, but it's almost completely unmarketable. Yes. Because it's... It's ideas and it's inflections on the Matrix franchise. And the story that that Wachowski wanted to tell 
are very sincere, mm. very open heart. I mean, it has a, it's, if if that's the last we see of the Matrix as a film mm. series, it has a really moving, uplifting ending. Oh yeah, yeah, it's a terrific film to go out. I, and the, the the thing, but there's also a sense watching it that it's again, it's a, it's it, it takes everything that the audience would want to see in a matrix signal says well you're not really getting what you yeah this is what you want but this is what you should have we're not giving you what you want we're giving you what you need yeah yeah exactly and i thought i thought i was was tremendous yeah i liked it a lot the feeling i had when i walked out of the cinema was similar to the feeling i had when i left the cinema after seeing cloud atlas Mm. and i struggle to think of any other films that have left me feeling like that and I have never felt that way about two films from the same filmmaker so we need to make sure the Wachowskis carry on being allowed to make movies because they are very very special unique extraordinary talented people thanks to Chris for making time for this recording Cinema Limbo is on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Acast, with almost 110 episodes available, so please download, review, and subscribe. We're also on YouTube, on Twitter, at cinema underscore limbo, and Podnotes is also on Patreon, so please pop a penny in the box to help us with our running costs. However, until next time, souls cross ages like clouds cross skies. And though a cloud's shape, nor hue, nor size don't stay the same, it's still a cloud, and so is a soul. Who can say where the clouds blowed from, or who will the soul be tomorrow? Only Sonmi, the east and west, and the compass and the atlas. Yea, only the atlas of clouds. You have been listening to Cinema Limbo, hosted and produced by Jeremy Phillips, with editing and music by Philip Alderman. Cinema Limbo is part of the Podnose Podcasting Network, so please visit us at www.podnose.com. Thank you.